Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 599. Yes, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, 599, just one away from 600. And we're kicking off with an original story to Starship Sova. What Nightmares Are You Living by Gwendolyn N. Nix? Yes, that's coming to today's show. And we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That's all coming to today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So we'll jump straight into the main fiction. And like I say, it is What Nightmares Are You Living by Gwendolyn N. Nix, original to the old the old girl there. Raised in the wilds of countless library stacks, Gwendolyn N. Nix has always been born a seeker of adventure. She saw her first beached humpback whale on a windy day in New York, met a ghost angel in a Paris train station, and had Odaden answer her prayers on a mountain in Scotland. Her short fiction appears in the Sisterhood of the Blade anthology, Battle Press. The Falling Down is her first fantasy novel released through Crowd, Crossroad Press, should I say. She lives in Montana, and you can find her more at. There's a couple of links there for Gwendolyn. This story is narrated by Seth Williams. Seth has narrated for Farfetch Fables, Tales to Terrify, and now Starship Sova. Life goal complete. And if you didn't know, Seth Williams or Seth Williams is the editor over there on Tales to Terrify. Yes. Hello, Seth. I hope everything is going fine over there, sir. Wishing you all the best. So, the Starship Sova is very proud present. What Nightmare Are You Living In? By Gwendolyn N. Nix. Read by Seth Williams. Mason traded his ten for a half gallon of milk and two candy bars, then offered a kind smile to the young cashier, counting back his change in a shaky voice. Mason got it. Really, he did. But the kid should have been that scared of him, even with the scar disfiguring half his face. Mason stopped smiling nonetheless. The kid relaxed after that. Typical. Want a bag? The baby-faced kid asked, wiping his hands down his corporate vest. Must have been his first gig. Nah, thanks, Mason said, careful to enunciate so his words didn't come out mushy. He shoved the candy in his pocket and hooked two fingers around the milk's handle. Can take it from here. 
Maybe, if he smiled with his good side, it wouldn't come out as some crooked monstrosity. Mason smirked, wondering how speechless the kid would get if Mason showcased the other scars on his body. Now those were nasty pieces of work. He started to push on the store's door, and stopped, stared. Losing his grip, the milk crashed and rolled on the scarred tiled floor before smacking the stand of the microwavable soft pretzels. Mister, are you okay? Mason eased the clenched fist that had dropped to his hip, his fingers trigger ready for a gun that didn't exist. He licked his lips, wished he had the courage to close his eyes and block out the thing pressing its eager face against the gas station glass. The creature, translucent enough for the throb of life to be visible, all slick, beating hard and flexible organs. Gray skin cloudy like the milk container, and Mason knew from experience that if he aimed right and shot true, the creature would burst like a pustule. It wore a mask patchworked from the shiny underside of chip bags and old matte plastic. They always did, didn't they? Refused to be seen even when they watched everything he did. But in the empty portals where the eyes should be sat two scratched Coca-Cola bottle caps. He'd seen them use marbles, shiny rocks even, anything to fill the empty sockets where the soul supposedly lay. Mister? The kid sounded shaky again, but not because of the monster outside. Because of him, kids like this one didn't have to worry about or even see dream snatchers. Mason risked his life to ensure youths like this could live out safe little lives in nondescript boring bodegas and never worry about what existed beyond the stars. Mason took a stumbling step towards the door. The dream snatcher twitched, black hands elongated like insect legs and tapped on the window before it scuttled back. Mason watched the creature's sides heave with the want to worm into his mind. Stick a slick tongue, proboscis or whatever fancy name the scientist liked to call it, in his ear, and meld to his spine while taking up a nice perch on his back. He'd seen hundreds enslaved with the monkey, sitting in the niche between the neck and shoulders, a disgusting alien hump. He opened the door carefully, even as the kid continued to ask panicked questions, asking, Who's going to clean this up? I don't think I can comp klutziness. Mason didn't care anymore. He stared the snatcher down. When it cowered, bowed its head like a bad dog, Mason knew this monster didn't exist. He'd given his life to bind the universe up and keep those things on the outside, to shiver and rot, and he'd never actually seen one look, hell, penitent. He smelled song, wild like the Pacific, a scent that used to be so commonplace. Sweat and blood had that sodium tang, but this one was rank with an after-scent of a snatcher salivating for a home, putrid like low tide. Mason trusted this was another psychological break. He'd had his share in the decades after the wars when he couldn't sleep and dreamed of snatchers lying in the heavy weight behind his head like a tumor. He despised himself especially when he caught himself wondering how his voice might sound under a snatcher's control. He'd managed to pull out of it, took some antidepressants, took some antipsychotics, until the frenzy mellowed and he wasn't shooting up restaurants when a breath of salted air wafted across the back of his neck. That's what this was. All it was. 
backsliding. Turning his back took a feat of strength, lifted the hairs on the nape of his neck, had him jittering to sprint down the autumn-warmed sidewalk. A nice fall day, Mason, my boy. People in light coats and scarves strolled under the changing leaves. One woman played with a chain on her neck before stepping into a plain white church modernized for a recalcitrant age. The lying myths that propagated on this planet, stories about possessing demons. Ha! Black smoke and damaged spirits were only young snatchers learning the ropes for the first time. But Mason had made the sacrifice for the universe. He breathed in sharply, but the smell remained, making him crave salt and vinegar chips. Couldn't help but peek back. He hated being like Orpheus, and saw with a neuron sizzling's jolt a second snatcher scuttle down the big fire-leaved oak, black hands eating up the ground quickly, back haunches raised in a cheetah sprint, blue world marbles for eyes. Panic, bright like the sun, blinded him. Terror crushed his chest. He broke into a run, pounding pavement until each step vibrated painfully up his shins. He nearly ran over a young woman jogging, "'What marathon are you training for?' And he glanced back to apologize and to explain, but there was another, a third snatcher, coming after him. He never knew they ran in packs. Though it was a Red Queen world for them. The lady jogger lifted her head as the marble-eyed snatcher ran underneath her, unconsciously accommodating around a creature she couldn't even see. One of his candy bars bobbed out of his pocket, the third crystal-eyed snatcher skidded to an abrupt stop to sniff and nudge at it, the mask covering where his mouth should be. Mason wouldn't be able to eat caramel smothered in milk chocolate again. Leaping over a jutted crack in the pavement won't break his back. His ankle rolled underneath him, sending him to the ground. Burned with road rash, the second candy bar crunched against his stomach, familiar and muted like a bone deep in the body snapping. He gasped in pain and breathed in the exhaust from a passing truck. Across the street, two kids on bike paused with incredulous faces. Shit, man, that must hurt. Are you okay? Shamefully, the sob retched out of his mouth. He scrambled to his feet and tested his weight on his ballooning ankle. Strangers began to stare and ease away from him at the same time. He was a car wreck too horrifying to look away from. Inside, he screamed at them, You're all ungrateful. I'm going to be taken away by the devil, and you'll never know or even try to save me. Impossible not to check, he was always looking back, and he did what he swore he wouldn't, face the snatchers. His hand dropped to his belt again, clutching at that empty space where his gun, the one that didn't shoot bullets, but nightmares, should be holstered. They weren't real. Backsliding. He turned and saw the trio had multiplied to a hunting pack of eight. The Coca-Cola bottle-capped one slunk to the rear as if nervous, but the crystal-eyed one had no such qualms. It leapt and then exploded in a yellow arterial spray. Mason jerked back at the whining gunshot ring, nearly came out of his skin when a strong unknown hand dug into his arm, dragging him back and covered his unprotected body as a second, different type of gunshot released. The nightmare web blossomed from the girl's gun and wrapped around the marble-eyed snatcher as tight as a mummy. The web expanded and contracted as the snatcher fought to puncture the web's membrane until it shivered and went silent with a final hiss. 
The others backed away. All bravery fled, waiting for a leader to charge and show them the path. Mason blinked until the red battle haze parted. The short-haired girl aimed for the bottle cap snatcher, the one that lingered, reluctant to depart. An unhealthy twist clutched Mason's heart. He briefly wondered if he was having a heart attack. Get up, go, the girl commanded, and unleashed the web. Mason could tell by her angle that the shot would go wild. The bottle cap snatcher hightailed it for freedom, unharmed. Where? Mason demanded, leaning into her. You didn't question saviors in the middle of the battlefield. You just hoped they stayed true. Into the truck, she said. A door creaked open, and he threw himself into the early 90s Toyota, casting a wary eye out the back window to make sure the snatchers had further dispersed. The bottle-capped one, persistent little bitch, had crept back and looked like it might leap into the truck's bed. The girl threw her gun into the space between her and Mason and started the engine, spewing black diesel into the snatcher's face. Mason laughed out loud at the snatcher's surprised sneeze. The bubbly carbonation of the victory washed over him as the girl careened into the street and drove off. "'Are they following?' she asked. He heard the fear lingering in her voice. For a moment he thought maybe he wasn't crazy. Maybe this wasn't another breakdown. That little reassurance was enough to get him back into the game. "'No,' he said, fixated on the miles of blacktop growing between him and the Coca-Cola eyes." And what kind of idiot are you without a gun? For Orion's sake, you're looking for trouble. Gun broke down ten years ago, Mason said. Those things weren't built to last. He felt she was playing a part, over-exaggerating his carelessness. If she'd passed proper training, he wouldn't have to explain that to her. What do you know about it? he asked, taking in her hand clenched to the steering wheel, up to the grinding jaw, making her teeth creak. You weren't in the wars. She snorted and clumsily pawed at her belt hitched around her too tight jeans. That was the other thing. Even though he'd heard of recruits being as young as ten when things were really bad, she was still too young. She should be like the store clerk. Ignorant. Didn't need to be in the wars when there's a new one opening right outside your front door. I assume you've looked outside lately, she said. Mason bit the inside of his cheek and glanced out the window while his ankle throbbed. Yes, he had looked outside. It had become a habit, really, the things he did for reassurance. And even after twenty years, he couldn't stop making sure it was still there. He remembered the first time he'd noticed. He'd had his nose pressed flat to the window, but told himself it didn't mean anything because dawn had been a hazy dusk and the night looked overcast. There were plenty of reasons why Orion wasn't in the sky. I'd like a thank you at least, the girl said. Say, thank you, Sidra, for killing the big bad snatchers. Mason grinned at her because, God damn, it felt good not to have to hide. Mason says thank you, Sidra. Sidra gave him a sidelong look before flipping her turn signal and taking the exit out to the highway. Where are we going? Mason asked. Is there anywhere safe? Sidra responded, her hand running through her short hair. She had a triangle tattoo, blue from age, just underneath her right ear. No, there really wasn't. 
When he'd first noticed Orion had disappeared, he'd spent the night outside in the backwoods house, miles from anywhere, with all the lights turned out. Grass cold underneath him. His right thumbnail shredded under his teeth. He waited for long strings of gray and navy cloud to pass and prayed the hunter would still be there. He wasn't. But Mason had never been stable. He saw snatchers all the time. Bets were he could imagine Orion disappearing, too. A bright light cast Sidra's profile in sharp relief. Mason dipped his head to use her shadow to shade his eyes as he peered further up. Two bright points, glowing like steady flashlight beams, grew in the sky. Is that Beetlejuice? Mason asked, hating how breathless he sounded. He never wanted to be alive for this, never thought this could happen, not after everything he'd done to ensure it wouldn't. That and Rigel, going supernova, Sidra said. That's impossible, Mason said. His hand gripped his knee so hard the bone began to ache. Why? Because we made sure the two starlocks would hold. There's no way they could break open. They were designed to last for centuries. Sidra grimaced and gave him another look that bordered on incredulous. Someone didn't design it very well, then. Like hell she didn't. Mason snapped, thinking of Laura and her broad-rimmed glasses, her blueprints in white crayons drawing incredible mechanisms on the board. Laura, with a bullet hole in her forehead and a snatcher crawling out from under her. He'd crushed it with his boot heel. The light got brighter, blanketing everything it washed out colors. Sidra unhitched the car shade and slammed it against the side window to block out the glare. The speedometer needle hovered over a hundred. If Orion breaks, the snatchers get in, he whispered. You can't doubt what you saw, Sidra said. I shot one right in front of you. They're here. Where are we going? Mason asked. We have to find a place to hide, a, a place to... think. Meet-up spot, Sidra said and fiddled with the radio dials that blared static. She pushed in a cassette tape. The scratchy tones of Foreigner told him he was hot-blooded, but Mason felt cold all over. There's no way off the planet, he told her. That was the deal. It was one last shot, one safe place. We save one planet, lock it in, and the snatchers invading the solar system would die out. I saw what happened to Mars. Shit, I saw Jupiter. The government tried to kill them with a hydrogen bomb. There wasn't anything left of the gas giant. Sidra tucked in her lower lip, and Mason got the distinct feeling he wasn't seeing the whole picture. There's no extraction plan, he said, jabbing his finger to emphasize his point. There's no one left. Maybe, she said, and reached to pull the gun over her lap, driving one-handed. Mason might have been a retired soldier plucked to be a warrior, but some instincts never went dull. Raw as an exposed nerve, he crossed his arms, fingers hooking around the door handle, ready to pull an eject if needed. He might not make it out of the roll alive and in one piece, but it was better than being betrayed and a whole lot better than believing in shadows instead of the truth. The light, if possible, got brighter. Mason squinted. He wasn't sure how Sidra could see the road anymore, 
Cars had pulled over on the shoulder, folks braving the highway to stand bow-legged with hands creating visors over their foreheads, amazed at the two bright stars starting to burn out hotter than the sun. It hurt to watch, like a scar that used to be an old, picked-at scab. He traced the faint outlines of the buttes and plateaus of the west, memorized the shapes of the scattered pine trees and how they smelt when he first landed here, broken and bloodied with a survival pack, devastated when he thought of his dead team. The team he'd been forced to kill before shutting this planet off from the universe. He thought he might go mad in that open land of plains and long-ranch fields full of wheat, barley, and hay. Sidra turned onto a dirt road. The vibrations rattled his insides, cradled his brain with the inklings of a headache. He saw the meat point far before they arrived, some small exposed cabin at the top of a hill. He scoffed at the ridiculousness of it. Battle-trained? These fools? He didn't think so. Only an idiot would pick such a place. By the time Sidra parked the car and yanked hard on the emergency brake, the outside had transformed into nothing but shades of two white and suffocated shadows. Mason tried to create some kind of protection over Sidra as she fumbled for the cabin's door, but his eyes ached into slits against the outside until he was like a babe again. Only the dark womb would be a bomb compared to this. Mason could see the veins of his closed eyelids. The door opened with a click that sounded like a bell, and the two of them pushed inside. Mason blinked heavily, clearing away the flashing green and purple retina burns until he could make out a rickety table and three chairs in an otherwise empty room. Sidra clomped forward and laid her gun on the table right in front of a slight man sitting in the third chair. Mason hugged the wall and scanned the window as Sidra locked them down tight, but no true darkness could be found. The blinds cast the man in white and black stripes. The familiarity itched Mason's brain. Heebie-jeebies wasn't what it was. And he thought snatchers were scary. But this man, this guy with the wire glasses and clothes that looked too old, even for this era, like he'd done his research wrong and couldn't go back on it, was all sorts of disconcerting. "'You're looking well, Mason,' the man said. The voice cinched it for him. He imagined it speaking to him in various tones, and all of them the red-hot variety. Rage, annoyance, frustration, and the best, pure hatred. He couldn't put the name to the face, but he knew that he didn't like this man, as the man felt the same way. But they were on the same side, and couldn't quite get on opposite ends of the spectrum to tear each other apart. Well, if it isn't the Uranian... Mason said, pushing away from the wall and wondering how quick he had to be to reach for Sidra's abandoned gun. Where he would go afterwards, he didn't know. This planet was burning up by the two exploding stars, and soon enough, if Sidra was to be believed, the locks would break and they'd be vulnerable again. Open to invasion and the whole world would change. He swallowed down hard on the lump in his throat. He couldn't fall apart now. Your childish jibes at my homosexuality never get old, the man said. The memories came to him in waves now, little gifts washed up like treasures. How could he have forgotten Lewis? Lewis and his smart-ass comments, his pride of being the core of Discovery's namesake, arguing with Mason to the point of punches over drinks. 
Mason bared his teeth, which twisted his face into a wicked horror show. Lewis took his glasses off and cleaned the lenses on his blazer, a coat almost on the verge of being a tuck jacket. Mason remembered that action from a long time ago, and his memory offered up another nugget. Lewis, in sorrow, perhaps regret, bending over Mason just before darkness crept over him. He jerked back from the greasy remembrance, and Lewis nodded at him in understanding. We haven't much time left he said, a sound almost imperceptible, like bows brushing against the window, made Sidra retrieve the gun, skirt the edge of the cabin, and peek through the shades. You're damn right we don't, Mason said. Orion's gone from the sky. This whole failsafe is collapsing, and it damn well shouldn't. I saw snatchers, real snatchers. Lewis squinted at him. Yes, as well you should. We're trying to wake you up, Mason and the easiest way to do that is through a nightmare. This light is nothing but you trying to open your eyes, he gestured to the window. The ball in Mason's throat grew to horror, tasting like pocket change on his palate. Defer. I don't know what you're talking about. You're right that the Starlocks, they're breaking. You're right that the Snatchers are here, alive and well. But you're wrong in that you're a war hero. You're an outlaw, Mason. Mason grabbed the closest chair, turned it to firewood against the cabin wall. Splinters dug into his palms, deep like darts. That's a lie. We went in to stop the Snatchers from taking over. After the treaty had been signed, we made peace with the Snatchers, and you and your little group of adversaries thought it wasn't good enough despised the betrayal, assumed that saving millions of human lives was worth the genocide of the Snatchers. We kept the world safe, Mason said, grabbing the edge of the table until his hands ached. We kept the Snatchers out. You took war into your own hands. You were renegades. We were doing what was right. You did everything wrong. Lewis said, his voice cracking. He stood up, his cheeks flushed under his dark skin, fire lighting up his pupils. You remember Laura, at least, don't you? Please tell me that in all your delusions of glory you haven't forgotten Laura. She was pivotal to our success. She was taken by a snatcher. You blew her goddamn head off. You convinced her you loved her, and she followed you to the ends of the earth, and you shot her through the head. What do you care? What was she to you? Mason smirked. But on the inside, the frenzy built, that red darkness clawing at his stomach, something that snipped at the controls, blanketing his calm. He didn't remember loving Laura, never remembered adoring her, never thought about kissing her. Respecting her, yes, but love? She was my best friend, you heartless bastard! Lewis hollered and reached across the table, to grab a handful of Mason's shirt and haul them face to face until Mason could smell the travel-weary scent radiating from him, something dense, dusty, and manic. I'm going to break your face, Lewis said, and his fist cocked near Mason's jaw. Mason thought about moving, but he couldn't. He had to take the punch. And then I'm going to break your mind, and then your black heart, Lewis continued. You want to know where you are? 
You get close enough to the Starlocks to activate them and separate this Earth from its solar system. But I'm smarter than you, faster than you, and we put you down before you had the chance. Mason jerked back. In the background, he heard the window prop open, followed by two gunshots like corks blown from champagne, and he knew Cinder was fighting the good fight and taking care of the Snatchers gathering outside. You've got a Snatcher with you right now, you worthless piece of meat, Lewis snarled. We put one inside you and locked you up in the prison for traitors. You've been there this whole time, locked in a goddamn hallucination of a world you saved, but you're all alone here, aren't you? Because you know what you did. You killed all those people. You killed Laura. For a cause that didn't mean anything anymore. Until even your subconscious needed to punish you. Mason listened. But he couldn't understand. He couldn't think because that bitch snatcher was back. Crouched in the ceiling corner to the left of Lewis's head. Coca-Cola bottle cap eyes watching him. Waiting for him. The logo so dull and scratched. Fingernail scratches, gouged like someone kept reaching behind, desperate to claw them off. No, Mason said, revelation making him sick, his legs watery, but he knew this man, knew the fight they'd had one night where Mason had punched him so hard he'd shattered Lewis's cheekbone. Now Lewis had kicked him hard in the belly until they both went to the hospital, and the nurse pressed ice packs to their bruises, and they sat next to each other, waiting for waiting for Laura to pick them up. You see it? Lewis said, gesturing to the snatcher. That's yours, you know, the one that's locked in your sick head, feeding you this world that you think you saved. She volunteered. She's probably the closest being to you now. It disgusts me that I have to wake you up and bring you out of this, but it looks like we need the evil back in the universe. We need the soulless outlaw to take care of the new case of bad guys. Because Orion's gone, Mason said. Because Orion's actually gone, Lewis agreed. Boys, can we wrap this up, please? We've got problems on the outside, Sidra said, shooting another bullet into the desert white beyond the window. The wardens are coming, and they're not happy. Mason got it then, wanted to smack his forehead in revelation. You are the renegades now, he told Lewis. What's happening on the outside? that has you going against the rules. Lewis's face twisted in disgust. Once you wake up, come and find me. I'll tell you then, but it's nothing like what you did. It's nothing like what you've done. What I'm doing is about justice, about doing what's right. Lewis let go of Mason's shirt collar. I'm nothing like you. Where will I be when I wake up? Mason asked, and the flood of memories felt too real, felt like another backslide, the Starlock activation key under his palm, the way his body stiffened when he couldn't press the final launch sequence, how the straps tightened around his body when the true heroes hauled him away. The way he ruined his vocal cords screaming when they put the Snatcher in him. He studied the Snatcher on the ceiling, black arms holding himself up, strange mask hiding whatever monstrosity existed beneath. He'd never noticed before but the Snatcher looked tired, like a good bulldog living on the standard fare of loyalty, even when her Butch Cassidy wanted to blow the world to pieces. You're a drooling mess in a locked ward, Lewis said. 
We're never going to get anywhere if you keep doing that, Sidra snarled, abandoning her post and marching to Mason. She patted her pockets, pulled out a marker, and wrote a series of numbers in black on the back of his hand. That's the code to unlock your straitjacket, she said, yanking his arm around to paint another set of numbers on his wrist. It felt uncomfortable, like she was etching the numbers onto his memory instead of simply writing them on his skin. This one will unlock the ward you're in. You'll need your nurse's security card, but lucky for you, she's got a crush on you, and the whole facility's going to shit because the government doesn't want to sink any more money into it. Once you're out, we'll be able to help. We can get to you, right, Lewis? Lewis glared at Mason and ran his hand down over his mouth. God damn right, Lewis! Yes, we'll be there, Lewis said. I can't believe this is happening, Mason said, and felt incredibly stupid for saying it out loud. A bundle of panic unraveled in his chest, speeding up his heart and making him feel like he needed to sit in a corner and be alone for a while. Wrap his mind around this. Decompress. Ditto, Sidra said with a smile. I never expected to conduct treasonous espionage, either. The blinding light from the outside began to permeate everything on the inside of the cabin, shining through the cracks of the floorboards and making the room feel disjointed, like it hadn't been put together properly. Abstract. Fucking Picasso. You have to do this, Sidra said. Mason realized he'd backed away from her towards the door. Laura had loved Picasso. He'd made a Picasso of her face when he'd shot her. He could almost relive it, the way his gun bucked when he pulled the trigger. What have you got to lose? Sidra asked. Even if this world is real, it's still going to explode. Think of what you know what you have to lose. Anyone would die for a second chance right now, even if that second chance feels like a dream. Mason had his training. He'd been prepped by screaming drill sergeants on how not to shit himself in the middle of a battle, how to look someone down the barrel of his gun and pull the trigger, how to believe that the cause was worth any violence as long as it meant change. A strange sort of silence hovered around him, he felt if he closed his eyes, everything happening in front of him might disappear and he'd be somewhere dark, calm, and cold, like a cell, in a cell. A weight dropped on his shoulder. A horrified shiver ran through him. He knew the snatcher, his snatcher, had taken her place and it sickened him at how familiar it felt. This world will blow up anyway. Mason said with a suicidal grin at Sidra. After all, he'd been taught that too, how to man up and kill himself when the time called for it, to do it with a smile no matter how terrified he may feel on the inside. If you're right, I wake up. If you're wrong, I die anyway. Fifty-fifty was always my kind of chance. Sidra handed him a small square, thin as paper, he watched her place a second piece in her mouth and hand another one to Lewis. Mason fingered the square, seeing almost a spiderweb shimmer in it. He slid it under his tongue. You better be right, he said, as bitterness engulfed his mouth. You better be goddamn right. And there you go. Hey, wow, thank you so much, Gwendolyn, thank you so much. Thank you indeed, and Seth, it's just lovely to hear your voice again there. Nice, nice, uh, how, how, how is things there? Are you, are you doing good? So, 
Yep, that was fantastic. Moving on, moving on to our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ims! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to talk about two related projects that focus on the history of genre publishing. Really interesting stuff. All of it science fiction adjacent, part of it specifically straight up about science fiction. And I think both of these projects are really interesting. The first I'd like to talk about is the 2017 book, Paperbacks from Hell, The Twisted History of 70s and 80s Horror Fiction by Grady Hendrix. I first encountered this book as an audiobook. I listened to it on a road trip, and there were many times I laughed out loud because Grady Hendrix clearly is in love with his subject, but he also doesn't take himself or his subject too seriously, and so he writes about it with irreverence, tongue-in-cheek humor, uh, very cleverly. But I ultimately caved and bought the book as well because it is filled with remarkable cover art from these books, and the images really speak for themselves. I just had to have it so that I could look at these images. It's really remarkable. Okay, so what is this book about? Hendrix traces the history of a really unique moment in genre publishing, the paperback horror boom. And he dates this boom, follows this boom through its beginning, which he dates at the remarkable success of what he calls the Unholy Trinity, those books being Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby in 1967, Thomas Tryon's The Other in 1971, and William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist in 1971. The combined success of these three bestsellers then launched this paperback horror boom, and he dates its end at the beginning of the 1990s, when, as he says, the success of works like 1991's film The Silence of the Lambs led presses to seek out the opportunity to publish so-called thrillers as opposed to horror. Hendrix divides his book into eight chapters, each thematic, and these include Hail Satan, Creepy Kids, When Animals Attack, Real Estate Nightmares, the most science fictional of the sections Weird Science, Gothic and Romantic, which incidentally was pretty interesting. I learned some things about V.C. Andrews of Flowers in the Attic fame. I did not know. Inhumanoids, also science fictional, and splatterpunks, serial killers, and super creeps. Hendrix points out that some of the reasons why these works from this paperback horror boom feel alien to us today are related to attitudes towards science. He points out that doctors in these books swap cigarettes with patients while going over their ultrasounds. Ah! But he also describes parents swooning in terror at the suggestion that they have a test tube baby. It's fascinating in terms of the way these works gauge public perceptions about science, and particularly medical science. 
I want to read a short section from his introduction, in which he calls the book a roadmap to the horror Narnia I found hidden in the darkest recesses of remote bookstores, a weird, wild, wonderful world. And here's what he says. These books, written to be sold in drugstores and supermarkets, weren't worried about causing offense and possess a jocular, straightforward, let's-get-it-on attitude toward sex. Many were published before the AIDS epidemic, at the height of the swinging 70s, and they're unapologetic about the idea that adults don't need much of an excuse to take off their clothes and hop into bed. Though they may be consigned to dusty dollar boxes, these stories are timeless in the way that truly matters. They will not bore you. Thrown into the rough-and-tumble marketplace, the writers learned they had to earn every reader's attention. And so, they delivered books that move, hit hard, take risks, go for broke. It's not just the covers that hook your eyeballs, it's the writing, which respects no rules except one. Always be interesting. So grab a flashlight and come wander down these dark aisles. The shelves are dusty, the lighting is dim, and there's no guarantee you'll come back unchanged or come back at all. All you need is a map and you're ready to take a tour of the paperbacks from hell. And so, needless to say, I recommend this, particularly if you're interested in pulp fiction in the intersection of science fiction and horror, and if you enjoy a laugh as well as a good shiver. Now, the second project I'd like to talk to you about is related to Grady Hendrix's Paperbacks from Hell. You may recall in the past that I have talked about Valancourt Books. It's an independent small press located in Richmond, Virginia, specializing in the rediscovery of rare, neglected, and out-of-print fiction. I have, in fact, been very fortunate to get to work with Valancourt Books twice, editing and writing additional introductory materials for two almost-lost Gothic classics— the Magic Goblet by Emily Flager Carlin, and The Magic Ring by Baron de Lamotte Fouquet. I've also taught from works that they have published, and I really can't say enough good things about Valancourt Books. And this year, they created the Paperbacks from Hell Project. From the pages of Grady Hendrix's best-selling Paperbacks from Hell, Valancourt Books is pleased to announce a new limited series of five long, unavailable paperback horror gems from the 1970s and 1980s, chosen by Grady Hendrix and Will Erickson from Too Much Horror Fiction. All five titles will be available for a limited time in a special mass-market-size format, and in some cases will feature their original glorious paperback cover art. Each book will feature a brand-new introduction written specifically for this edition by either Hendrix or Erickson. So how cool is that? A book about these lost pulp horror paperbacks creates inspires, leads to this project where some of these books are resurrected. I just love that. Okay, the five titles that are part of this project include The Nest by Gregory A. Douglas, originally published in 1980. That one was also the basis for a 1988 cult film adaptation. Also, The Tribe by Barry Wood, 
originally published in 1981. The Spirit by Thomas Page, originally published in 1977. The Reaping by Bernard Taylor, originally published in 1980. And also, When Darkness Loves Us by Elizabeth Ingstrom, originally published in 1985. Now, interestingly enough, this one includes not only a new introduction from author Grady Hendrix, but also the original foreword by none other than science fiction legend Theodore Sturgeon. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, there's also the original cover painting by Jill Bauman. In fact, Ingstrom had been a corporate copywriter with an advertising career in Hawaii, and she left that to take a fiction workshop with Theodore Sturgeon, and that workshop produced When Darkness Loves Us. Hendrix calls When Darkness Loves Us as twisted and sharp as a corkscrew jammed in your ear. How's that for a recommendation? Let me give you the synopsis for When Darkness Loves Us. Sally Ann and Martha, two women searching for love, finding terror. During a terrifying storm, a gentle childhood is destroyed by a twisted man who promises love but delivers nightmare. In the lightless depths of an underground labyrinth, unseen creatures lie in wait for an innocent traveler, cold, skeletal hands stretched out in welcome. There is horror in darkness, horror made greater when darkness loves us. Cue some spooky music there, right? Now, not only is this Paperbacks from Hell project fully published and thriving, it has been so successful that Valencourt Books has announced there will be a second round of Paperbacks from Hell with more titles republished with new introductions. So I would suggest you check out valancourtbooks.com, V-A-L-A-N-C-O-U-R-T books.com for the latest breaking information on this project. And so there you have it, my friends. Two things that make me extremely happy are genre history, and bringing back classic, or not-so-classic, older works that are lost or very hard to find. And so I love the fact that we have this glimpse into a unique moment in publishing history with this paperback horror boom with Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix. And I also love the fact that this book then inspired Valancourt Books to reanimate or like bring these works back to life. I do hope that this was of interest, and I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. Oh, Amy, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, the big squeeze. Thank you so much indeed. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do think about supporting so we can bring stuff like that. That would be fantastic. PayPal, I know I hammer on about it, but if it's just a couple of quid, wow, man, come on. Get your finger out there and help her. Just feel good. The feel good factor. There you go. Patreon. Come over to the front of the website. It's there. It would be fantastic. So that is it. Like I say, until next week, just like I say, a good night from me. 
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Get out there.